Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine, and this is your Rattlecast for Tuesday, November 5th. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we have a great show for you tonight, as always. Lynn Knight is going to be here. Uh, she'll be here at 6 o'clock. It's 5.46 right now, so if you're watching uh, After the Fact archived, you can um, skip ahead 14 minutes and Lynn will be here. Uh, but in the meantime, we're going to do the pre-show, or the prologue, as I like to call it. Um, now, if you uh, follow Rattle.com um, and get our daily poems over email, you know that Lynn Knight had one of the um, um, the daily poem today, um, The Lesson. And it was one of the, the um, most viral poems we've published over the years. Um, it's, I think, uh, number 10 on the top 10. If you go to top poems at at our website it's number 10 on the top poems and um i thought it would be fun to start out the show today by playing the top three most viral poems since since lynn had a viral poem um and let's start it out here you know back in the day um the early days of the internet it it was a lot easier for poems to go viral i don't know what the difference is now but there was a time uh, maybe 10 or 15 years ago where we'd post a poem, and every once in a while it would appear somewhere like Stumble Upon or Reddit or one of those aggregator sites, and um, we'd have like 50,000 views in a day. And uh, that doesn't really happen anymore. I'm not sure what, what it is. I think maybe um, it's just a matter of um, that people have found out how to monetize social media now, and it's uh, an actual market instead of just some surprising thing. But uh, we used to worry about servers crashing and things like that on certain days. And uh, now everything's so diffuse and there's so much content in the world that that doesn't really happen in the same way when poems go viral. It's sort of a a smaller virality. But here are three poems uh, that did go viral. Uh, This first one is by... Let me pull up for you. This is by Brian Brian Tromboli. And uh, it was published... When was it published? Uh, It's in issue number 29, so summer 2008. And um, at the time, Brian Triboli was an MFA student, I think, at um, Binghamton, SUNY Binghamton. But now he's a doctor, Brian Triboli. He's a lecturer in writing in the English department of Yeshiva College in New York City. He's also the poetry editor for Rec Park Journal. And um, this poem about 10 years ago was one of those poems where just in one day, out of nowhere, I don't even know why for this one, we had about 30,000 page views in one day for this poem things my son should know after i've died and here he goes things my son should know after i've died i was young once i dug holes near a canal and almost drowned i filled notebooks with words as carefully as a hunter loads his shotgun i had a father also and i came second to an addiction i spent a summer swallowing seeds and nothing ever grew in my stomach Every woman I kissed, I kissed as if I loved her. My left and right hands were rivals. After I hit puberty, I was kicked out of my parents' house at least twice a year. No matter when you receive this, there was music playing now. Your grandfather isn't my father. I chose to do something with my life that I knew I could fail at. I spent my whole life walking and hid such colorful wings. Once again, that was Brian Trimboli reading Things My Son Should Know After I've Died. And uh, 
no matter when you receive this, there was music playing right now. So there was music playing right now. Okay, let's look at another poem. This is uh, Tony Gloegler. Now, the audio quality on this one isn't as good, but um, it's a great poem, one of my favorite, one of my all-time favorite from Rattle. And this one, unlike uh, Brian's, it wasn't right when the poem came out. Some Somewhere about six months later, the poem uh, popped up viral on some some aggregator, and um, we had about, I think, 25,000 page views just that one day. And um, Tony Glorger is going to be the guest December 10th, I think it is, on the Rattlecast, um, reading from his last book, Until the Last Light Leaves, and also we'll have a special open mic that day for um, an anthology um, that New York Quarterly Press, or, yeah, New York Quarterly put out um, about poets writing about autism. And that'll be, I think, December 10th. But this poem is uh, 1969 by Tony Glogler, and it's from, well, we republished it in the best, of, uh, the best of Rattle in the summer of 2006. I think it's originally from issue number 17. Uh, and here we go. This is 1969, one of the best endings of a poem that I can remember. 1969. My brother enlisted in the winter. I pitched for the sixth grade Indians, and Coach said I was almost as good as Johnny. My mother fingered rosary beads, watched Cronkite say, and that's the way it is. I smoked my first and last cigarette. My father kept his promise, washed Johnny's Mustang every weekend. Brenda Whitson taught me how to French kiss in her basement. Sundays we went to 10 o'clock mass, dipped hands in holy water genuflected, walked down the aisle, and received communion. Cleon Jones got down on one knee, caught the last out, and the Mets won the World Series. Two white-gloved Marines rang the bell, stood on our stoop. My father watched their car pull away, then locked the wooden door. I went to our room, climbed into the top bunk, pounded a hardball into the pillow. My mother found her Bible, took out my brother's letters, put them in the pocket of her blue robe. My father started Johnny's car, revved the engine until every tool hanging in the garage shook. Once again, that was Tony Glowigler reading 1969. And that, uh, that last image where every tool in the wall shook is one of the ones that I'll remember to my dying day. Such a great, great ending for a poem. Uh, let's see. Okay, let's do another one here. This is uh, another poem that went viral once upon a time. Uh, there's no audio for this one, but um, it's interesting. I don't know. I like to think it went viral on a telemarketer form, but this is one of the ones. It went viral really early. This was the first poem we ever uh, had you know, go viral in that way, way back in maybe 2006 or something like that. Um, and back then there wasn't really good tracking, so I don't even know where it came from. It just all of a sudden we were getting, you know, thousands and thousands of hits an hour for this poem. And, uh, this is Brett Garcia Myron. Uh, Brett is a professor of composition now at Saddleback College in Mission Viejo, California. His most recent book is Buffalo Cactus and Other New Stories. Um, and here he is. There's no audio for this, so I'm gonna have to read it, but this is Brett Garcia Myron and his poem, Telemarketer. I'm reading on the couch when she calls, asks for me by name. I smile at her scripted intimacy, imagine her cubicle with photos of pets, the long bend of light on her lacquered nails. Listen to this, I reply. David kissed the soft inner banks of women's thighs. Pardon? 
Oh, there's more, I say. Thighs like loamy earth that cup the rivers, or lilies blooming in rose and mint. Is this a bad time for you, sir? Is it for you? Tell me something, I insist. Tell me anything. A quiet unfolds between us, as though we'd spent our breath on withering arguments or lost it in the scented air of sweat. Finally, she says, I'm in Lincoln, Nebraska. Outside, leaves are turning in the cold. And so that was uh, Brett Garcia Myron with his poem, Telemarketer. And um, I think if you, if, you, if you look at all three of these poems, they're all short. Uh, they all have narrative embedded in there, but they're lyric poems. And um, they all have, they're all about intimacy, really, um, in different ways. And so if you want to find a poem, if you want your own poem to go viral, uh, maybe that's a good way to do it. Um, let's see. We have five minutes left until we call in night. Let's do, this is the fourth viral poem. This is the only recently viral poem. Um, and uh, this is 2015 Rattle Poetry Prize winner Tiana Clark reading her poem, Equilibrium. Equilibrium. Took me 30 years to say, I'm glad I don't pass for white. Pressed those words into the dark creases in my palm like a fortune. A lifeline of futures I wanted to begin. Like the way the haze of summer heat makes a drive home different. Right now, even the streetlights have a misty orb to them. Even the cigarette butt flicked out of the window on the highway plumes with embers skidding toward me like the tail of a backyard bottle rocket. I wanted my hair straighter, nose thinner, skin lighter. I thought this is what my white boyfriends wanted as their hands became each European request. A Russian nesting doll I kept unstacking until there was only illusion of beauty split open. Like the great Gatsby cover with the disembodied head of a crying flapper over the neon scape of city all the green beacons we chase as thoughts of people who don't love us are left back drifting on the roads as we drive. But every muscle knows how to get home. How the smallest part of ourselves cannot be divided. The last doll is still whole in my hands. Even the car can still purr from energy after it's been turned off. What is left whispering in us once we have stopped trying to become the other. And that was Tiana Clark from issue number 50, Rattle Poetry Prize winner that year, Equilibrium. Such a great poem. And um, uh, great form, too. It's, it's a, I'm not sure if um, I'd seen a poem like that before, but I've seen a lot since. So I think a lot of people are writing poems that way now. Um, and Tiana Clark... Um, um, She's the author now of I Can't Talk About the Trees Without the Blood, winner of the Agnes Lynch Stewart Poetry Prize, which was published last year. So check that book out. Uh, she teaches creative writing at Southern Illinois University at Edwardsville now. Um, that was Tiana Clark. We'll have to have her on the show sometime soon because I didn't realize she had a full-length book out now. Uh, we'll have to get her. Um, so that was your uh, pre-show. Hope you enjoyed it. We're going to call Lynn in just a minute. In the meantime, I should say, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been publishing Rattle since 1995. It was um, 
founded by Alan C. Fox in Los Angeles, California. I live and work up in Wrightwood, California now, uh, but we're still based in, Los, in Studio City. And um, if you enjoy this podcast, I should say before we, we call Lynn, uh, please do click the like button and uh, subscribe wherever you're watching or listening to this. It's always really important. Uh, really nice to have as many subscribers as possible, especially on YouTube, because once we have 1,000 subscribers, and we're almost there, we've got 150 to go, but once we get up to 1,000, I think we can have live closed captioning, maybe, which is nice, um, and some other beta things like um, uh, embedding live, too, so we can put the stream right on our website, I think. So uh, do subscribe and tell your friends to subscribe if you enjoy this. And um, yeah, thanks so much. And I'm going to throw up the splash screen, put on some bumper music, and uh, I'm going to call up Lynn Knight, and I'll see you all in just a little bit. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, so uh, Lynn Knight's here on the line. Um, Lynn Knight was the winner of the 2009 Rattle Poetry Prize uh, for To the Young Man Who... Oh, what, what was the name of the poem called? Let me look it up really quick. It was, it's in this book, actually. Um, to the Young Man Who Cried Out uh, When I Backed Into His Car. I think that's the word. Um, she's also um, the author of a bunch of books, most recently The Persistence of Long, which is the book we have right... No, The Language of Forgetting, which is the book we have right here. Um, her cycle of poems on Impressionist winter painting, Snow Effects, uh, came out in 2008, has been translated into French by Nicole Cortet. Uh, her work has appeared in Best American Poetry, a whole bunch of other awards, including an NEA grant. She's also one of the poets who um, we've published the most in Rattle. Uh, we've published her nine, in nine separate issues, and I think in uh, seven times on Poet Response, so that's 16 poems. I think once it was two poems, so that's 17 poems of, of Lynn's uh, that we've had in Rattle. And uh, here she is right now, Lynn Knight. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Tim. Um, so, so how are you doing? You're calling from uh, British Columbia. You just moved up there recently, right? I love British Columbia. I, you know, we didn't come here seeking political mm-hmm. asylum, but, you know, by this point might want to. But, no, I love it. My daughter and her family live almost directly across the Georgia Strait from us, so... That's a real pleasure, and I love we're we're on an island. New experience. It doesn't feel like an island until you want to go somewhere, and then mm-hmm. you're like, oh my god, you have to coordinate all these things. But it's beautiful here. It really is. I love it. So, so how how big is the island? Um, I think it's as big as California. I mean, it's huge. Oh, you mean like you're the whole British Columbia island? Yeah, the gotcha. Van- Vancouver gotcha. Island. Yeah. 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 Okay. Um, so do you want to start out with a poem from uh, The Language of Forgetting, maybe? or I do. Okay. Um, I thought what I would do is start with the first section of the book is about childhood. And 
several of the poems in that section are about um, the house that I grew up in. Mm -hmm. And that house was wildly unfinished. Imagine a big box and it had a dirt floor. It had no plumbing. It had a cold water faucet. That was the plumbing. It didn't have electricity. It didn't have rooms. It didn't have much of anything. And, you know, I'm old, but it's, it's not like Little House on the Prairie's time. Mm -hmm. um, but it made me, I think, a writer. So I'm very grateful for having lived like that for 13 years. So I'm going to start with a poem that sort of addresses that and then read a couple more poems about the house itself. And then I'll go on um, into other sections of the book. Okay, great. So well, the first poem is called Into My Ear. And what page is it on so I can show it? On the it's screen? on page four. Okay. Yeah, let me know each time. Just say the page number and I'll flip to it really quick. Yes. Thank okay. you. Okay. Into My Ear. Every house has its story. My life as a house, it might begin. Not even troubling with background information, the excavation, the foundation, ancestral matters of less interest than window, door, room. But the house of my childhood would begin with the years it stood unfinished, a potential in the world of the achieved. It would talk about the voices traveling the roomless interior, the two girls, the man and woman, the sometimes dog. There would be humor and sorrow and tedium as there is in the life of anyone, any house. It would tell of these and then it would sing itself into the ear of the younger girl, down her ear into her brain, from her brain to her spine, from her spine to her hands and feet. And the girl would love the song. Atonal and weird as it was, she would love it. All her life she would try to sing the way the house sang, to imitate its silences and modulations, its swift insinuations. So um, the other thing about my childhood that marked me deeply was that when I was in the sixth grade, my parents decided to send my sister and me to Catholic school. My father was an avowed atheist. We were Protestant. And um, it was a time when all those young girls were seeing the Virgin Mary and, you know, I thought I was going to have a vision like that if only I could believe. So this poem is called My Father's House. I was one of the black, it's on page 10. Okay. I was one of the black hearted ones, my father said, a Protestant whom they would try to proselytize thumping his dictionary like the Bible it was to him, warning me not to be seduced by the robes and glories, the incense and beautiful words, but the gold and smoke, the brocade, the murmurs as penitents knocked at their hearts to open the door to mercy, forgiveness. Who could resist such pageantry? The chapel walls were painted mauve. 
and during Lent, with all the saints and the Virgin draped in purple cloth, it seemed some elaborate fashion show was about to begin. Heretical to think, my father said. No doubt the nuns saw my dereliction, more thumping, and were contriving immediate conversion. I was not to let my guard down. But God was my guard and the host of angels ready to descend and save my wayward soul, I would think on my way to school, bantering like a normal girl on the five-mile bus ride, but all the while thinking this might be the day the chapel wall opened and Christ stepped through in a blaze of light to save me and everybody would see and fame would come and the dirt floor under the sofa where I sat while my father explained the world would vanish into carpet, walls, heat, the finished house of my father. But my father's house was all words. Make a bed of words to lie down in. Make a floor of words to stand on. Make a faith of words that nothing would betray. Not his drunken promises, not his blueprints, untouched under ash and dust. Make a hope of words, the start of forgiving. Beautiful poem. So, so Lynn, um, tell me just in general, um, um, how would you describe what this book is about? The title, The Language of Forgetting, is a title that I struggle to explain when people ask me what it means. Mm -hmm. Basically, what it means to me is that the older you get, the more days there are you have lived that you have absolutely zero memory of. Hmm. And I look at this book as a means of recording the things I would like my daughter to remember, my grandchildren to remember, and that I would like to have for a sort of source of memory for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, the second part of the book is about my mother's descent into dementia. Um, and I am, of course, terrified that I'm going to follow into the same thing. So um, that was part of it. But it's it's separated into four sections. Childhood, my mother and her dementia. Family, mostly my daughter. And the last section is about love. So mm-hmm. it's um, a pretty general sort of little autobiography. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a beautiful description. I was wondering just how you formulate that title and what it means to you, because it is such a sort of complicated concept in there, um, you know, that, that we, um, and but that's what we use poetry for, is to um, to give a language to what will be forgotten and um, and save it in a fixed form. So um, it's a beautiful, beautiful way to put, put a book together. And also, um, um the topic of your mother and her Alzheimer's, um, it seems to me like that, for a while, that was one of the big topics that a lot of people were grappling with within poetry. Um, and you do it really well with, with this book, especially the, the poem, the Rattle Poetry Prize winning poem. Um, but the whole section's really strong. Oh, thanks. Yeah, well, I wrote, <laughs> I wrote reams of poems. It, it went on for eight years, and she actually had a dementia called Lewy body disease, which is the second... Um, 
most common dementia after Alzheimer's. But when she was diagnosed in 1999, there was not that much known about it. There were like five websites compared mm -hmm. to, you know, now there are hundreds of thousands. Um, so, yeah, I, I wrote a memoir. I wrote, I think people in my poetry group were like, please, not, not another poem about her mother. But, um, but it was, you know, it was definitely a way of accepting what was happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's something that, that a lot of people have to go through, you know, this day and age with, you know, older people moving into nursing homes and things like that. Um, um, yeah, it's a big topic for poetry. So um, before I read the rattle poem, I want to read one um, one more poem about the house, which mm -hmm. is like a, a looking back. Um, and it's called, it's in the persistence of longing which I don't know if you can see. I'm probably not holding it up well. but Yeah, yeah, we can see it really well. Um, which has this wonderful cover. It's a Diebenkorn painting, and the Diebenkorn Foundation, I feel obliged to say this, allows artists and scholars and poets and writers to use Diebenkorn's images for free for their covers. Oh, wow. All you have to do is donate a book to them. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's so, really wonderful. Yeah, wow is right, because when I was looking for a cover for this book, it was like $1,500 here, 800 there, and then <laughs> I called this guy up and he said, no, it's free, and I was, I was just so flabbergasted. Well, that's really beautiful, and a great idea for, for them, too, just to keep that work alive, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this is called Late Explanation to Old Lovers, and I think I sent you a copy of yeah, it. Yeah, I have it. I'll put it up on screen, too. Okay. It's not easy dragging a house on your back, but it's still unfinished. So where should I set it down? How should I stop the long haul? That's what one of them said to me once. I'm in it for the long haul. He had no idea I had a house on my back. He thought he'd given me shelter. That was enough. I tried to tell him. I'd say, this house, and he'd interrupt, not that again, thinking he could snap me out of it, out from under it, who knew? By then, my father was dead. Shame isn't easily cremated. I could feel it there in the ashes, heavy, gritty, like the years of grime the house had acquired while I hauled it along. I left the long-haul one, found another, this time, I kept the house secret, pretended I'd grown up in a house like everyone else's, floors, windows, doors. But he kept feeling the air around me. Something's there, he said one night, something I can't get at. I grabbed the storm door that should have protected the actual door, which lay on the dirt floor back in the shadows like a man come undone like my father. So you know what happened to that one, how fast his this just isn't working speeches came. The house shifted on its cinder blocks, but no wind was ever strong enough to carry it away. Still the case. When someone says, my skin, I think of the house I walk in, the trouble it takes to fit into a car, a theater, aisles in a grocery store, the hitch in my gate 
is the slope of the roof and the hole where stairs should have been. Some nights I fly in my dreams, the house a shadow so heavy I'm about to fall, but I don't fall. Or if I do, I wake. And the house being solid, oh, the lovers who tried and tried to get their arms around me, stays. Hmm. That's true, too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it yeah. is like a skin. And I keep writing about it. I, I guess, you know, I'm never going to finish with it. It was never finished, so maybe that's appropriate. Um, and that, that house oh, was in the Adirondacks of uh, New York? No, it was, no? It was in Cornwall on Hudson, New York. Um, and it was at the edge of the toniest neighborhood in town. Um, but it was facing a forest. It was it was a beautiful place to grow up. I mean, mm -hmm. we, we ran down, you know, the bank from the house and into the woods. And um, yeah, it was beautiful. It was near Storm King Mountain if people know the Hudson Valley. So, okay, I'll, I'll go to the second part of the book and um, I'll read the rattle poem, which is um, always interesting to read because it's just one long thing. And um, sometimes I run out of breath and I think I better take a sip of water before I start. Yeah, it is definitely a, a one long poem to catch your breath before and after reading. <laughs> okay. So it's on page 26. Okay, thanks. To the young man who cried out, what were you thinking when I backed into his car? I was thinking, no, no, oh, no, not one more thing. I was thinking my mother, who sat rigid in the passenger seat, crying, how terrible, as if we had hit a child, not your front bumper would drive me mad. And then there would be two of us mad, mother and daughter, and things would be easier. They said things would be easier once she went to the other side into complete, total madness. I was thinking how young you looked, how impossibly young, and trying to remember myself young, my body, my voice, almost another person, and I wanted to weep for all I had let come and go so casually, lovers, cities, flowers. And then I was thinking, you little shit, for the way you stood outside my window with your superior air as if I were a stupid old woman with a stupid old woman beside her, stood shouting, what were you thinking? As if I were incapable of thought as I nearly was, exhausted as I'd become tending my mother, whom I had just taken to the third doctor in so many days, and you shouting your rhetorical question, then asking to see my license, your license, slowly, as if I would not understand the word, and the lover who made me feel as if I never knew anything appeared then, stepped right into your body, saying, what were you thinking? After I had told him, sobbed to him, that I thought he was, I thought he was 
I thought we would. And then my mother began to cry as if she had stepped into my body only years before, or was it after? And suddenly I saw the whole human drama writ plain, a phrase I felt I had never understood until then. An October afternoon in Berkeley, California, warm, warm, two vehicles stopped in heavy traffic on campus, a woman deciding to make way for a car trying to cross gaily, act of random kindness she thought might bring her luck, then immediately, right before impact, knew would be bad luck if it came, being so impure in its motive, and then the unraveling of the beautiful afternoon into anger and distress that would pass unnoticed by most of the world would soon be forgotten by those witnessing the event and eventually those experiencing it. While the sun went on lowering itself toward the bay and ginkgo trees shook their gold leaves loose until the co-ed on the way home from class Unaware, a car had backed into another car, unaware of traffic, stopped to watch the shower of ginkgo, thought of Zeus descending on the sleeping Darayi in a shower of gold, and smiled over all her own lover would do in the bright, timeless stasis before traffic resumed. Okay, I need another drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah, do please do. Um, so, Lynn, let me ask. Um, kind of two things I wanted to ask about. First of all, how did you get into writing poetry? Um, and and uh, are you a um, that poem we published today is the daily poem. The lesson um, mentions being a English as a second language teacher. Is that what you did? You do that? No, I actually wasn't a second language teacher. Oh, that, no? that that student was not my student he he re that poem is a sort of transcribing of what actually ah. happened he came into my he came into my class in between my classes he wasn't my student and he just ah. asked me to help him oh um, i see okay um so yeah so so um so how did you get into writing like why why poetry um, my mother wrote poetry. My mother sang to us when we were babies and young kids. And there was always the one good thing about the house without electricity, plumbing, anything else, was that we read a lot. We read all the time. And I knew from an early age that I wanted to be a writer. And when I was in fifth grade, I had a wonderful teacher who's no longer living, whose name was Mrs. Seipel. And I wrote a poem in the fifth grade about autumn leaves, and I said they were falling fastly hmm. because it rhymed with past me. And Mrs. Seipel said that there wasn't actually such a word as fastly, but if you were a poet, you got to make words up. <laughs> and I thought that sounded pretty cool. So there oh, I was. Wow. wow, that's a great, yeah. great story, Lynn. And um, wonderful, wonderful teacher, you know, what a gift. Mm -hmm. And if I remember, I think we talked about this before, but uh, or maybe you did uh, wrote this in a contributor note at some point, but you write every morning, right? You write daily? I do, yeah. Um, and and um, 
describe that process a little bit. And um, and Connie Posts asks a question that kind of relates. She's here on the chat. She says, uh, on average, how many revisions do you usually go through on your poems before they feel ready to send out? So so talk a little bit about your process, that daily work, and then the how how revision goes for you. Okay, um, the daily work. I I I'm compulsive. I have a very high streak of um, OCD and. I just do it every day and I do it with great pleasure and I know that most of it will end up being an exercise and that, you know, Robert Frost said, if you're lucky, you get 12 poems a year. And I think that's probably pretty accurate. So it's not as if I'm writing a poem a day and they're actually poems, but I'm someone who has to write out the stuff that other people seem to be able to just filter through in their heads, I have to get it out on paper. So I just do it. And if I can, it, usually a line comes in through my right ear. I don't know why that is, but it does. And if I'm absolutely stuck, I have beside my desk a basket of postcards that I've collected from museums over the years. And I reach blindly into the basket and pull out a postcard, and if I've never written about it, I write a poem about it. Oh, wow. That's a good... So sometimes those poems end up being poems that I keep um, and not exercises, but it's hard to say. Um, the revision process for me is a very strange thing. I usually know when I finished a poem whether it's an exercise or a poem, and I don't do tons of revision I probably don't do as much as I should when I when I look back through early poems I think that's um, that's true but um, I'm also someone who because I am so compulsive I have to be careful because I have in revision killed a number of poems hmm. that you know had some lifeblood in them but by the time I was finished with them they were just absolutely dead so I tend to do the exercises, I put them aside, I try now not to um, decide immediately that, oh God, not only is this finished in a poem, but I should send it somewhere. Um, I try to wait, you know, a little bit of time before I do that, didn't used to, um, learn that the hard way. So, um, you, you mentioned um, you could tell right away the difference between an exercise and, and a real poem. Uh, what do you think the difference is? I feel something that is probably inexplicable at the end. It kind of like the... No, I don't feel, you know, my hair standing up, you know, on top of my head, like Emily Dickinson said, or the closing, was it Yates who said it's like the closing of a, the lid going on a perfectly constructed box, hmm, yeah, something yeah. like that. It kind of feels like that. It feels like I got to the end of it and the end of it is the right ending for it. And it closed. Although I will say that the ending of the rattle poem that I just read, I did revise. I wrote that poem in like 15 minutes as fast as I could type. Mm -hmm. And then I revised a little bit of the end of it. So, yeah. you know. 
do do most of your poems come that way where they come out at once and you don't you know yeah yeah i mean they i don't i don't ever like start something and go back to it i just Mm -hmm. i just go and sometimes i don't go any place worth you know keeping and sometimes i do yeah yeah that that's my experience writing too i i feel like there's a um you're sort of like building a space, like a sort of a creative, imaginative space when you make a poem. And I can't get back into it after I leave. So I feel like, so so if I write, I stay up as late as I, you know, I stay up all night maybe until I finish the thing because I know I'll never be able to get back to that that space. Um, yeah, and if you do get back, you know, you're, Beckett said we change every moment. You're not the same person, you know, so mm-hmm. you can't expect to have that whatever that combination of feeling and emotion was that led you where you went, you're, you're not going to get that back. Yeah. You, know, you, yeah. Can, you can tinker, you know, you can change a word here and there, but the, but the, you know, the jet blood that Sylvia Plath talked about that, you know, you're not, you're either in that or, you know, you've left it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel exactly the same way. Like you're going through the motions of of trying to be that person you were, but you're no longer that person. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, um, do you want to read some more poems? Sure. Um, I'll read um, a poem from the third section. I'll, you know, I, I was going to read a couple more poems from the section about my mother, but I think, you know, that poem to me says, you know, what needed to be said. So I'll mm-hmm. just stop there and go to the third section. And the third section has poems um, about family and about my daughter. And I learned the hard way in Berkeley last year that there are some poems in the section that I can't read um, publicly because I burst into tears. Um, and even though I used the secret that my friend, the poet Nellie Hill, told me of squeezing my fingernail into the the pulpy part of my of my index finger or third finger um that's supposed to stop you from crying it didn't mm-hmm. oh so, wow. wow that's yeah. a good that's a good tip though i, I could use that sometimes <laughs> <laughs> yeah well it you know it has worked for me but it didn't it didn't work then okay so this is the first poem in the third section and it's It doesn't really need explanation because it kind of explains itself as it goes. It's called The Other War, and it's on page 45. Thanks. The Other War. My daughter was born in the far shadow of the war. Her father, a Canadian guitarist. We turned on the past. Who needed to heed old voices? The dead multiplied in Vietnam while we sat waiting for the sun to set over the Georgia Strait, my daughter's father playing a Bach fugue, my heart learning the patterns rapture takes towards complication, rupture. My daughter was an easy baby, plump, hungry, but my milk was not enough. Maybe it was my meager diet brown rice a thousand different ways. Maybe the dope and cigarettes I smoked. Maybe my sorrow, because I could tell my daughter's father no longer desired me as he once had. 
my daughter nursed best in the quiet of the night when I sat with her in the rocker, the straight lapping the rocks in syncopation with her sucking. But she was always hungry. I feared I would starve her. So we bought formula, bottles, and the dream of being Earth Mother, my hair flowing in waves down my back, one baby at my breast, another at my hip, a third at my feet, vanished like the words my daughter's father whispered to her, tender, tender, I could never remember enough once he was gone and the war kept on and my hair longer and longer until the day I hacked it off like a boy's. My daughter plucked the air for it like someone playing a lost instrument. So I'll read, how much time do I have left? I'll read um, another poem from that section which is called after listening to birds in the field beyond the house. Okay, we have, we have plenty of time, so no rush. Oh, okay. Well, um, yeah, I'll read. I, I do have some more that, this is on page 62. Okay, thank you. After listening to birds in the field beyond the house. You may be yawning right now in the same way your grandmother four times removed yawned or saying your name with the same inflection she used when she stood in the fields talking to herself, talking herself out of despair that might also have come down to you through generations along with your feet and hands, your slightly higher left breast, the thickness heat brings to your ankles. She's still in the field, talking, lifting her hair from her neck, roping it, coiling it, then starting back for the house whose windows need washing again, entering the kitchen where dough has finished rising on the table, the linen over it worn thin like old lace. And the man she loves or loved, maybe he was what she needed to talk herself out of, he's sleeping in a chair by the fire, readying for late afternoon chores. So who are you with all this behind you to imagine? How are you supposed to live your life when so much of it has already been decided by the randomness of sperm and womb, the birds flying their shadows back and forth over a field where, for all you know, her voice was song they couldn't get enough of. I wrote that poem because my um, great-great-grandmother escaped the um, potato famine in Ireland, and my cousin found um, letters that she had written while she was still in Ireland, and her husband had gone on to the States to settle in Philadelphia. And up until that time, I had no idea that we had Irish blood. And I was so incredibly happy that I had Irish roots because I think of Irish, you know, as I think of poetry. I love Yeats. Um, 
Yeats, even though I called him Yeats when I was in high school, was one of um, the early influences on me. So, yeah. And the reason we didn't know it, I think, was that there was all that prejudice against the Irish um, when my father was a boy. And I think that um, he felt that it was something that should be hidden. One of, you know, the family secrets no one should divulge who knows um i'm gonna i'm gonna switch to the persistence of longing and read um a fairly short poem in there that i wrote before um if i can find it i had it marked um i wrote it before the Me Too movement, but it seems to me now like a kind of prelude to it. It's called The Silence of Women. And I think I sent you a copy of this, too. <laughs> yeah, I think I have it. Okay. The Silence of Women. Finally, the silence of women began to disappear. It crumbled like old bread. It evaporated like steam from broccoli. It rose like the scent of turmeric from kitchens. It mixed in with birdsong. It flew over rivers and oceans. It settled in prairies. It poured out like water trapped in leaves. The silence was one language. All the women on earth spoke it. They had mastered the tongue. But it vanished in the sound of vacuum cleaners. It lifted like smoke from chimneys. In winter, it covered the snow. It was white then, so at first, no one noticed. More snow, they thought, longing for spring. When spring came, the silence burst into cherry blossoms, plum blossoms, apple. This world of ours, the women cried. And their stories rushed out like breath held almost too long. So I'll read one more poem from... Um, the Persistence of Longing, which is on page 80, and I also sent you that. And it's a rattle poem, and it's a mirror poem. So the second stanza repeats the first one in reverse order. I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you about that, actually, Lynn. Um, I'd never seen a mirror poem before you sent this, um, and nobody else, neither Alan or Megan, had. Um, did, is this a form that uh, comes from somewhere? or? Yeah, I saw it somewhere. Um, I don't remember where I saw the first one, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not my invention. Okay. Yeah. I was wondering, cause uh, I've seen a lot of them since actually like Zaina Hashem Beck has one in um, Arabi song and, and we've, we've published like three or four now, but I'd never seen one before. It was, a, it was kind of sort of a shocking uh, performance the first time we <laughs> saw it. And I just upped the ante a little because I like to do, I like to play with form and that's, that's another thing that I do. Um, when I'm writing exercises, I deliberately practice writing sonnets. I love writing pantoums and villanelles and sonnets. I just love doing that. So um, I decided I would make this rhyme in my own little way and that all the lines would have um, eight syllables. Hmm. Which probably nobody notices, but that's okay. Yeah, I didn't notice. I never noticed syllabics. Uh, okay. I, I don't know. They're they're interesting. So it's it, you know it's in iambic. Um, what is the 
tetrameter? Tetrameter, no. I, I don't know what the <laughs> eight is, but anyway. While plum blossoms sweep down like snow. What you found was not what you sought. What you loved was not what you thought. White plum blossoms sweep down like snow when it rains. The seasons don't know the names we use. I loved you then, he said, meaning never again. Plead with him all you want. He's through. Your turn to decide what to do. Your turn to decide what to do. Plead with him all you want. He's through, he said, meaning never again. The names we used. I loved you then when it rained. The seasons don't know white plum blossoms sweep down like snow. What you loved was not what you thought. What you found was not what you sought. If you heard a groan, that was my um, golden doodle who's at my feet, probably saying, <laughs> enough already, feed me or something. Um, so it says 641. Do I have time for two more poems? Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, before... Um... I wanted to ask two more questions. Well, well, I have my own question I wanted to ask. And then, uh, and Amy Miller's here too. She has a question. Oh, okay. I wanted to talk a little bit about um, 16 Rivers Press. And, because um, it's a co-op press. Oh, which... now I'm so embarrassed. I should have talked to them at the get-go because they <laughs> published this. Yeah. Well, no, no, it's no problem at all. But, but, um, but 16 Rivers is a co-op press, which there aren't too many co-op presses in existence. And it's such an interesting model, I think, to, to be publishing poetry. So can you talk about um, how that works and how you got into publishing that way? Um, it's a poetry collective that started in 1999. And Sunday, this past Sunday, they had a party to celebrate their 20th anniversary, oh, which wow. I had been hoping to go to, but I hurt my back and I can't travel at the moment. Um Anyway, it's been a wonderful experience. I have some of the, the dearest friends of my life that I have met there. It's a collective, and a lot of times I think I'm not really suited for a collective because I'm so headstrong and stubborn. <laughs> so it's been good for me in that way because you have to arrive at consensus and you have to listen to other people, and you have to sometimes acknowledge that you were flat out wrong. <laughs> and, and the best example of that in the collective is that when we put together the first anthology, which is called The Place That Inhabits Us, which is a, a collection of poems um, not by people in the press. We, both anthologies that we did, we got poems, you know, we solicited them. And the title of that book is a title that I argued vehemently against. And then I realized after it was published and it went on to be our bestseller, um, that it's a great title. It's a perfect title for the book. So I ate many plates of crow over that one. And the other anthology, which is called America, We Call Your Name, has some absolutely fabulous poems in it and um also has been you know an important part of the press but i think we're up to 40 some books mm -hmm. um and i am a long distance member now of course but i still am part of it and i do whatever i can do long distance um, so so how does it like actually work though how do you decide which books to publish that's the kind of there's an open um competition mm -hmm. and 
people submit and then a committee reads the submissions and then they select five and then everybody in the press um, they're active and supportive members, all the active members and the supporting members if they wish to read the manuscripts and then there's a scoring system mm -hmm. and then we meet um, and then we discuss the scores and talk about the manuscripts and um, try to select one or two or sometimes just one a year and go on to publish them and we, you know, it's been a very successful model. Um, I think the people who started the press, Terry Errett, Carolyn Miller, Valerie Berry, and um, Jackie Cudler, and Margaret Kaufman were very, very careful about, they thought it through in ways that are quite amazing to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, they really figured out what to do, and they figured out the model and the consensus model so that there are structures in place that work and mm -hmm. that have worked and that you can rely on. So it's not this, you know, bunch of people just like fumbling around. It's, it's contentious sometimes and the meetings can um, be contentious, but there's always this feeling that we're all poets. We're in this together. We want to publish the best books we can find. And mm -hmm. that's the, that's the mission. Well, that's great. Um, so, so Amy Miller is here. I think you might know Amy Miller. Um, she, I, do, I love Amy Miller's poems. Yeah, so yeah, we do too. We published Amy Miller almost as much as you. I know, um, I know, it's great. Um, so she wants to know, would you talk about the process of writing your ekphrastic poems? Um, do you aim to tell a story about the image or capture a moment that it evokes or something else? Which is a great question because we have the ekphrastic challenge if everybody... Anybody watching doesn't know where, where we have a new ekphrastic poem every month. So what advice can you give uh, to people submitting to the ekphrastic challenge? How do you go about doing it? Um, the first thing I always say when people ask me this is that um, a picture really is worth a thousand words. So don't try to just retell what you're looking at because, you know, it's, it's already happened. Um, so either enter the painting or the photo or whatever it is and see... Think about, think about what is drawing you to it. Because I don't ever write about anything that I'm not drawn to. I have to be drawn to, to the painting. It has to speak to me in some way. And finding out why that is happening is part of the process of writing about it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know that I can be any clearer than that. I, I wrote a whole series of poems called... Um, snow effects about impressionist poems in winter and I did not know it at the time but my friend the poet um, Kathleen Lynch pointed out to me after I had written them that they were written about the body in winter because it was at the time that I was tending my mother my mother was going in it was right around the time of her diagnosis so all of those poems spoke to me in a deep way because of winter, because I was thinking the winter of my mother's life and anybody's life. And um, I was drawn to them in that way. So I guess just figure out what it is that the poem is saying to you and why it's pulling you in and then go there. Great, great. Thanks so much, Lynn. Uh, did you say of two more you want to close us out with? Well, I'll just read one because it's getting kind of late. I'll just read the last poem in the book, and it's on page 82. Okay, great. 
It's called um, The Impossibility of Capturing What You See. And it's after a painting by Monet. An afternoon wind blows their umbrellas back, framing their hatted heads in wind-taught black. They set off across the field, the man going last, the wind in the high grass, the only conversation, its syllables tumbling out of themselves like secrets unlatching in the minds of the man and the woman. The child walks ahead, humming, maybe, off-key, since he's so young. The man thanks the wind for the way it molds his wife's dress to her hips, and his steps slow into a dream of their first nights. Why does she keep so hidden now? Has she taken a lover? His mother warned him all beautiful women bring sorrow to themselves and others. She herself beautiful, even near death, her skin a parchment where he read rushed words, whispers, confessed betrayals. In the end, it's all one story, he thinks. One afternoon, you start across a field with your wife and child. Another afternoon, soon or not so soon, you lie in wait for death to take you in its arms. Arms like the wind, he thinks. Invisible, like death with its secrets, its whispering and rush. A language you learn all at once, with no means to record it. Thank you so much for having me, Tim, and sorry for the screw-up at the start. <laughs> no, it's, and thank it's no you problem also at all. For, thank you for doing this when you have a head cold. I really appreciate that. <laughs> no, no problem at all. I, I, hopefully I push the cough button every time so nobody could hear, but I've been, I've been coughing up. It's just like a dry cough at the end of uh, the cold from last and week. You're at the end of it? Good. Yeah, yeah. Good. But, um, but yeah, thanks so much for joining us, Lynn. Uh, really great to see you again. I haven't seen you in about 10 years, and you're one of my favorite poets, so it's really nice to hear... Uh, hear hear new poems in your voice again thanks so much for for joining us oh thank you for having me really thank you thank you and thank you rattle and megan and alan and everything you do for poets it's it's so i know i've told you this but it really is so fabulous what you are doing for poetry and poets in the world i i can't say it enough well, well thank th- you well thanks Lynn. It's, it's just our pleasure we we you know do what we like to do and uh enjoy it so so we're really glad to have this show and glad to glad to have you on um and i think we have a poem of yours coming out in uh the summer issue coming up so so we'll have you we'll have you in rattle again pretty soon great thanks so much yeah thanks so much good night good night ah so that was lynn knight um the beautiful reading from a great book um once again her book is the the Language of Forgetting. Uh, her book before that that came out two years ago is The Persist- Persistence of Longing. So uh, two books from Lynn uh, from 16 Rivers Press. Um, she has another book again. She has, I think she's she's the author of maybe uh, five books or something like that. So um, definitely go to um, her website, Lynn Knight. That's L-Y-N-N-E-K-I-N-I-G-H-T.com. And uh, you can find her other books. So next week, we are going to have Wally Swist joining us. Uh, Wally Swist is is author of, um, I think he said, three dozen books. He sent the last three. He'll be mostly reading from The Bees of the Invisible. He's a Massachusetts poet from uh, 
the fall issue of Rattle. So, um, so come in uh, the same time next week, Tuesday, November 12th, 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Um, join us 15 minutes early for that pre-show, which is always a lot of fun. You can always um, do a open mic uh, over Skype or um, pre-recorded at rattle.com slash rattlecast. And um, so for now, I'm going to take a brief break, get myself situated, and then we'll come back with the open mic for everybody watching on video. If you're watching on audio... I hope you have a great week, and I will see you next Tuesday. Bye.